This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're listening on the planet. I'm delighted that you're joining us. My guest today is Andrew Horsley, who's the co-founder and CEO of Quantum Brilliance. Andrew is an applied quantum physicist passionate about the game-changing potential of a room-temperature quantum computing solution using nitrogen vacancy centers in diamonds. He has over eight years of experience leading projects to develop quantum technologies for computing, communications, and sensing. In his spare time, he's a keen cellist, basketballer, and cyclist, and hope to learn more about your musical interest at some point. His company, Quantum Brilliance, was founded in 2019 and is a venture-backed Australian-German quantum computing hardware company, providing diamond quantum accelerators supported by a full stack of software and application tools. Quantum Brilliance's vision is to enable mass deployment of quantum accelerators that will propel industries to harness edge computing applications and next-generation supercomputers. Quantum Brilliance has international partnerships that extend into North America, Europe, and the Asia-Pacific working with governments, supercomputing centers, research organizations, and industry leaders. Andrew, welcome. Delighted you're joining me. Thanks so much, Chris. Uh, Great to be with you here today. So, Andrew, I always like to start the podcast by asking my guest to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. My objective is certainly to give our audience a sense of your background, what you did before you founded Quantum Brilliance, but also to orient and hopefully excite uh, people regarding the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people take to get into the field of quantum information science. So could you please share with our listeners a bit about your background and path so far, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, what you studied? Uh, any insight into organizations or companies where you worked or did research before starting Quantum Brilliance? Sure. So um, I'm from Canberra originally. So that's the capital city of Australia and where Quantum Brilliance was then actually founded as well. So I grew up here, did um, before uni, uh, obviously science was my great passion through all of high school, but um, also a huge amount of music, uh, playing the cello. And then uh, also a lot of languages. Japanese was my great passion there. And I went wow. to, lived in Japan for a bit before going to uni as well. And um, through uni, then I you know, majored in physics uh, here at the Australian National University in Canberra. Um, but actually about a quarter of my subjects were language subjects as well. So huh. um, I did Japanese and then German as well. And then went on exchange to Germany and that, that kind of led to me then having the Germanosphere on my radar when I was looking for, for uh, PhD opportunities. So I went to Basel in Switzerland for hmm. my PhD and um, ended up having six years there. And so my journey through, I was exposed to a range of quantum things through undergrad. Um, I actually did my honours in nuclear physics, which was fantastic, but... Uh, I think the, the 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 lure of quantum really dragged me back for for my PhD, and so I uh, moved over to to Basel and had had a great six years there in the end of um, PhD and then postdoc. And the projects I was on were ones 
really focusing on applications and, and translating science and trying to turn that into usable tools. And so I actually started in atomic physics and it was using uh, atomic vapor cells for, for doing quantum sensing experiments, uh, then optical quantum memories. And that, that focus on the practicality kind of drew me towards Diamond. As this platform, you don't have to head it up, you don't have to cool it down. Uh, you know, the lasers are very simple. And so there, then during my postdoc, I collaborated with uh, a really strong diamond research group uh, at that same university and, uh, and did some quantum sensing stuff there. And I think so that draw towards diamond is the, the ultimate practical platform for quantum systems and quantum computing as the most impactful thing to do with quantum technology. Uh, it's kind of uh, where what's drawn me to here. And through that process, I, I was one of the first or the, the first person in our lab in the particular field that, that I was working in, in in that research group. And so a lot of my PhD was going out and essentially uh, very similar to being an early stage startup founder, building the brand of our research group in the, re- in the, the research community marketplace. Uh, to, to to kind of use startup terminology there, and so that that helped prepare me a lot for yeah a lot of the elements of of what I'm doing in in a day to day at the moment. Wow, amazing! So, sidebar, but I actually am a German lit major, and I also play the bass did it for a living for twenty years. So, All right. <laughs> language and music. Do you still play the cello, by the way? Not as often as I'd like, but um, yeah, I actually met my uh, my partner. Uh, in Basel, in the orchestra there. So she, she played violin and, and myself on cello. And wow. uh, so, yeah, yeah, certainly oh. pull it out every now and then. But um, I think startups have, being a startup founder has a great way of consuming every other hobby <laughs> in your life. Oh, really? So, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll get back to it at some point, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you for sharing that. So interesting insight. I mean, that, that Diamonds was like a logical way to quickly get to benefit around quantum. So my next question is, you know, how did you come to found Quantum Brilliance based on this sort of revelation? You know, was there some epiphany uh, moment where you thought to yourself, you know, using diamonds, we could actually create a quantum computer you could hold in your hand? Or- the epiphanies came from my, my other technical co-founder, Marcus Doherty. So Marcus is one of the key pioneers of the field of diamond quantum systems. And he's, he's been the theory dude. So he, he pulled together the theory uh, for the first time um, in his, his thesis, and he's really led the charge supporting all the top experiment groups um, over, over the last 10, 15 years. And he's, so I, I got to know him back in Australia, and um, after my time in Basel, um, I'd, I'd always been really keen to find a way to work with him as, as someone uh, who's... You know, one one of those people that um, just is at a different level uh, in terms of uh, the, the things he understands and, and how quickly the insights he can bring to any yeah. to the topics. And so, I jumped at the chance to to then go back to Australia, go back to my hometown even, and and work with him. He he got a bit of funding to to start a commercialisation exploration of, of diamond based quantum systems and a very different uh, vision back then. You know, like like many physicists. You have that first folly of, oh, I'll make a teaching experiment and sell that. Huh. Uh, if, you, if someone buy it, if, if, if someone can give you money for it, great, uh, from, from getting your, your venture off the ground. 
but, but you're never actually going to make a company out of that. <laughs> right. You had to grant do some experiments and then maybe that's but, it. But that gave, us, that, that gave us the first momentum. You know, it was enough of a narrative to, to, get, to get moving. And through that, then, then we really started. It gave us the breathing space away from, from you know, grant cycles mm-hmm. to have a couple of years to really think, okay, what do we need to, to make quantum computing in diamond work? And um, Marcus then being, being able to then solve some of the really key challenges that had been blocking diamond um, being adopted as a, as a mainstream quantum computing platform. Uh, already it's, it's one of the most uh, prevalent and uh, impactful quantum sensing platforms as, as, a, as a practical and room temperature um, quantum system. But for quantum computing, there have been some key blockers, and um, Mark has been able to get around the technical elements there, and myself being more of a uh, being able to build the thing in the lab, and and then together also kind of artic- uh, finding the market and articulating a path to, to to grow a company out of that. Quantum computing based on diamonds is a comparatively unique approach. I mean, it's again not requiring dilution refrigerators or optical tweezers. Um, can you share with our listeners a little bit more technical detail about how it actually works and how you create and manipulate qubits using diamonds? And question that begs, I guess, is where do you get the diamonds, among other things? Yeah, sure. So the diamonds are generally synthetic diamonds. Yeah. Um, so, so you're purchasing those um, kind of like you'd buy a silicon wafer. And the supply chain isn't quite as uh, mature as, as you'd be getting silicon wafers for. but you, you buy an off-the-shelf diamond, and then we're creating nitrogen vacancy centers inside that diamond and kind of creating a, a whole range of value-add um, fab processes on top of that, that substrate. The, the qubits that we use are actually uh, nuclear spins. Hmm. And uh, so each nitrogen vacancy center gives us uh, the nitrogen nuclear spin and then an electron spin. And so nuclear spins are fantastic as as qubits because they're intrinsically very well isolated from the environment. Um, the problem is that they are so isolated you can't actually control them. <laughs> and so you need that co-located, uh, strongly coupled electron that the huh. NB center provides. And so there's an electron that you can optically interact with, you can um, control very easily, and you can use that electron to connect multiple nuclear spins together. And then each nuclear spin, you can also directly uh, control, but you read it out and initialize it via the, that uh, neighboring electron. And so we end up with this model where we have an array of NB centers that are spaced a few nanometers apart. And so the electrons of each NB center can see each other and see which state they're in. So you can entangle the electrons uh, through uh, addressing them by microwave uh, frequency pulses. And then each NB center has one or possibly several qubits attached to it. So we've got that nitrogen nuclear spin, but you can also, if there's carbon-13 nuclei, um, so the diamond is made up of obviously purely carbon atoms. Um, Most of it is carbon-12, which has no nuclear spin. And so that provides us a wonderful, completely noise-free environment to to host our qubits in, ideally. Um, Carbon-13, though, is... Uh, does have a spin, and so we can use that as a qubit if it's placed in the right location nearby an NB center. And so we can have actually a cluster of several nuclear spins per NB center. So, so that's one kind of deep dive into okay, at the materials level, what's it look like? 
Yeah, yeah. For people that are maybe more familiar with other types of quantum computers, the, the key thing there is that it's a spin-based qubit. So essentially same same set of parameters and, and properties as trapped ions, as neutral atoms, um, as silicon or other donors in a silicon, uh, so phosphorus or other donors in a silicon-based quantum computer as well. Thank you for explaining that. Fantastic. And I read that it's like diamond-based qubits were, in fact, a leading concept for many years until around 2014 when progress was halted because it was determined it was too hard to create synthetic diamonds with enough precision to make the system workable. But could, just to go down, you know, kind of more into the technology again, you know, what kind of – how did Quantum Brilliance come up with a solution to, you know, managing these kinds of qubits and, I guess – uh, as you say, the supply chain for synthetic diamonds is still emerging, but to, to be able to manipulate the, the qubits in this, you know, model, what other additional technologies did you and the team develop? I, I start by noting what we're talking about here is specifically quantum computing with NBA centers at room temperature. Uh-huh. So at cryogenic temperatures, work certainly continued and, and um, there's, for example, fantastic teams in Delft in the Netherlands that, that are continuing to really push the limits of what you can do uh, at cryogenic temperatures with MVs. Yeah. But at room temperature, the challenge there is that you need to have the MV centers placed a few nanometers apart in order for them to couple together. That, that's, that's really the mechanism available to you at room temp. How do we create MV centers? Traditionally, it's by firing ions at high energy into a diamond, so implantation. And the, the challenge with that is that it fundamentally just cannot provide the positioning accuracy and precision required in order to create an array, a scalable array of coupled MV centers. And so people have then got to, so did amazing demonstrations with a single MV center with a cluster of nitrogen and carbon-13 qubits, uh, demonstrations of pairs of coupled MV centers and entanglement between them. But that was about as far as things have gone, and, and there have been some recent uh, demonstrations of, impl- of implantation of large molecules with many nitrogen in them to create networks of three coupled embassies. It's, it's, it's a technique that fundamentally just cannot scale, and um, for that and a couple of other reasons. And so what we did instead was take an approach of, okay, how else could we create those MVs? And how could finding a way then to introduce them during the growth of diamond hmm. with then very high precision? And so you take a diamond, you pattern its surface, introduce nitrogen to that surface, and then you overgrow, and that creates the NV centers. And ultimately, that's a technique that uh, you can improve to the point that you have lattice site level, so atomic level accuracy in the placement of your NV centers. And, and that's in, in a nutshell that, that, that key. Uh, breakthrough that, that then enables room temperature diamond to, to again be that scalable platform. Amazing. So it seems like that would require some strategic partnership with the company making the synthetic diamonds, yeah? So is that a fair statement? I mean, so, are, so that's, that's are certainly an important part of our, our supply chain. But yeah. then that fabrication is actually something we do in house. Really? Uh, we do have a range of strategic partnerships with universities uh, in Melbourne, um, that's, that's a real diamond materials centre uh, center of expertise, and also um, Fraunhofer IAF in Freiburg in Germany. Uh, we've got then a very close partnership with them as well to 
translate uh, this research uh, and scale that up. It, yeah, it certainly requires a lot of partnerships. And the the other one, I guess, to, to note is inspiration for this coming from uh, really decades of expertise in doing similar precision fabrication on silicon. Uh, and that's led by uh, the University of New South Wales, people like Michelle Simmons, um, being real pioneers of this precision uh, semiconductor fabrication approach. Hmm. And so Michelle being a great inspiration to us to then uh, develop that on diamond, the great advantage that diamond brings compared to uh, atomic qubits in silicon is that diamond lets you operate at room temperature without without the cryostats. Right. So that's heartening to hear you could take learnings from the silicon, the history of silicon you know, fabrication and translate it to, to developing diamonds to work in this setting. Wow, very cool. Let's shift gears a minute and talk about performance. So certainly there are myriad ways to measure quantum computing and implications of the, the value of quantum computers. We're all familiar with you know, quantum supremacy after Google's breakthrough experiment in 2019. And IBM has standards around what they call quantum volume. But preparing for our conversation, I read that your company describes something you know as a more valuable qualifier for the steel nation industry. Uh, trying to achieve quantum utility or usefulness. So I'll give you a chance to sort of wax philosophic for a moment, but please share your thoughts on this proposed category. So quantum utility. Yeah, sure. So I think um, so quantum utility is one I think is, is quite a general uh, term. It's uh, I mean, one that we've coined, but applies to any quantum computer. It's, it's mm-hmm. that when, when, is it, when is a quantum computer useful? It's when yeah. it beats the alternative. And the important distinction that quantum brilliance brings is the alternative doesn't have to be a supercomputer that you can scale down the size weight power complexity operation cost of the quantum computer such that the comparables are actually the components of a supercomputer or a gpu or a laptop and so the thresholds then of quantum computer performance that you have to cross before quantum computers stop being just a you know, an interesting development tool that people access right now and become actually a computational tool. You yeah. can cross that threshold with many fewer qubits, uh, a much earlier stage of quantum computer development and uh, have a much more incremental pathway rather than having to wait for thousands or millions of uh, qubits with error correction before you have uh, really valuable computational tools. So it's point of utility there. Mm-hmm. It's introducing another axis to the scale where we, we, we consider both the performance of the quantum system, but also then, and it's, uh, I guess, a set of kind of application-specific metrics, mm-hmm. but metrics like size, weight, power, operating cost, that then define what the comparable classical device is. And quantum utility occurs when the quantum computer is the, the most attractive option to solve your problems. Yeah, great. Thank you. Question always arises, certainly in we're talking quantum computing around SDKs, right? Can you share a little bit about, you know, your software architecture, which ones you support? How do how does the programming work? Are people writing in Python or other languages to use your Gen One computer? Yeah, sure. So you can you can use Python scripts to to access our computers. And uh that that's a software framework that can accept really any any of the main mainstream input languages and then outputs uh, we go through an intermediate representation and output into chasm and send that down to our hardware layer but these are tools that uh, we're building up with 
a particular focus as well to look at systems integration. And so how how do we take quantum computers and rather than being interesting standalone devices, um, become integrated parts of, of larger systems, uh, whether that's uh, you know in small edge scale devices or, or in a data center or supercomputer. And so we've got then uh, significant internal efforts on on exploring that. So that's that's a C plus plus based core, but oh. there's Python wrappers for users to to access. Great, thank you. I always like to ask my guests about clients, right? That's always the million dollar question, or I used to say the sixty four thousand dollar question based on a TV show in the sixties, but I found some of my guests that don't know about that show dating myself. Anyway, I read that you're working with a camera-based edge compute company called Trellis Data uh, to explore how quantum fits into their machine learning-based approaches, where classical compute isn't very suitable or efficient for them. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you're doing with them? Yeah, sure. So Trellis is um, one of our great early partners that uh, are here in Canberra. And one of the really strong um, uh, parts of, I guess, the Australian uh, deep tech ecosystem. The great learning we had from them, so that, so they do uh, provide edge computing solutions um, mm-hmm. for a range of clients. The thing, that one of the great pain points they were finding is that in edge compute, say onboard a satellite, you have a very tight size weight and power budget, and they simply couldn't cram enough compute power into that in order to perform certain high value applications so that might be natural language processing being one of the things there that that with the the gpus that you could have on board the approximations that you're forced to make to run a natural language Mm -hmm. processing algorithm mean that you're essentially getting random noise out and so you you can't support those kind of applications right and what we worked out with them was exploring then um identifying with them, okay, where, where are the, the bottlenecks of that process and where might quantum computing be able to support it? Um, and so that's, that's quite a general thing of where, um, how, how quantum computers in general can support things like natural language processing. And then the unique value add that quantum brilliance can bring as well is that you are now, now long, no longer restricted to cloud-based access to that quantum computing resource, but you can have it on board the satellite or uh, on board, say, robotic and autonomous systems as well. That's transformational because there's a whole range of applications where cloud computing is not uh, a solution and, and is likely never to be. So where you're limited, for example, by network access or by bandwidth, so on, on board satellites, data generation is massively outstripping, for sensors and cameras on board, massively outstripping the growth in communications bandwidth that satellites have. And so they have to be performing whole range of onboard pre-processing of data and just sending down high-value process data to, to the ground. And so these things also, latency and um, or security and network robustness, mean that there's, there's uh, always going to be needs for that local compute. And these are things then where quantum brilliance is able to bring that power of quantum computing solutions to those edge environments as well. Well, great example. Thank you for sharing that. Again, in preparing for our conversation, I came across what I thought was a really interesting quote from your CSO, um, Dr. Marcus Doherty, in which he said, I think quite astutely, the future is heterogeneous. I'm quoting him. The, uh, the idea of a single computer that can do everything is gone. I think of it in terms maybe like a Cray versus Intel or NVIDIA system. Uh, he went on to say quantum computers, especially when they still have just a few qubits, are likely to be heavily tailored to solving one particular problem. 
Speedier quantum computers, for example, superconducting systems, may be used for one type of problem, while diamond-based ones are used for another. Over time, some technologies will fade out. So as you were just describing with the trellis data example, but can you just elaborate maybe how might this multifaceted approach evolve? You know, more specifically, what real-world use cases might be addressed by different quantum computing approaches? This, I mean, this is something that uh, is, is not restricted to quantum, but really just in computing across yeah. the board. Yeah. It's moving to that heterogeneous architecture. We saw that, um, you know, the last 10, 15 years with moving from a CPU-based approach at, at the high-performance computing to introducing GPUs to the mix. And then we're finding increasing uh, then diversity of architectures with other types of accelerators being introduced as well. You know, there's like you know, various startups or scale-ups at this stage like Graphcore or Cerebrus bringing out AI-specific chips or accelerator cards as well. Um, neuromorphic computing being another general area where there's this general shift across the board for all types of classical compute to have yep. chip-level specialisation. And then quantum computing is going to be part of that broader set of uh, heterogeneous compute applied to solve you know, pretty much every problem. Within then the, the realm of quantum, the, there's going to be a balance between you know, different, different qubit platforms have different strengths and weaknesses. Diamond-based systems provide good performance, but there's other systems that can provide better performance per qubit. And, and given the stage of development of those platforms as well, can provide more qubits than Diamond can at, you know, at the moment and in the near future. And so from a quantum computing perspective, that's where I see this analogy with, uh, say, Cray. So Cray for, for many years is, was synonymous with the best of the best. For right. If you wanted if you, you know, if you wanted that status symbol of a supercomputer, you bought a Cray. <laughs> and it came with a couch too, right? I mean, <laughs> All right. Well, I didn't know about the couch. Oh, you know, that uh, sort of like a couch around the, you sort of opened up the frame and right, I mean, the, the pictures of it, there was sort of like upholstered uh, seating around the outside of it. It's my memory of it anyway. But So, so this, this is what Google and IBM need to be aspiring to, is better, better upholstery for their systems. <laughs> Probably, um, yeah. Sycamore <laughs> as a barca lounger. Is it exactly? <laughs> so, so that, but that, that's kind of what I feel most quantum computing platforms are aspiring to be is the cray of super of quantum computing, rather. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's the bees knees. They're high cost machines, but it's a low market size and ultimately a relatively restricted then value capture that, that you can get there. Yeah. I think with quantum brilliance, really, what we're aiming for is then more like an Intel or a Nvidia style, good enough. Or, or excellent performance, but not the mm-hmm. best, and being able to have the practicality to then service a very wide set of applications and, and so a much larger market there. Yeah, well, implications for, as you say, the edge, right? I mean, out where these large complex systems just can't operate, and uh, whereas, you know, your solution can function in very different kind of settings, which I think is exciting. That's right. So, that, so that's one side where it's completely unique uh, for, for quantum brilliance to really hit that. The other side is, say, in a data center, you could have one or two or a small number of very large superconducting qubit systems or, or, or other types of kind of mainframe quantum computers. And let, let, you know, just picking some numbers, let's say you've got one 1,000 qubit quantum computer and then you've got 10 100 qubit diamond-based systems for quantum brilliance. Yeah. 
for some problems, then you can break the problem down to a level where 100 cubits is sufficient. And so you can have wins from the operating costs and complexity and, and number of units you can deploy um, by simply distributing that between the 10 different 100 qubit systems. Huh. Um, for other types of problems, though, you really need the full power of all 1,000 qubits, which is exponentially more powerful than, you know, assuming everything's behaving itself, than those, those 10 100 qubit systems. And so this is also what we're talking about in terms of then the specialization of there's some problems where you simply need the best quantum computer that you can find and that's the only the that's very much the right platform to be solving your problem on there'll be others where uh, a parallelization of, of smaller quantum systems that are more readily available um, and you can now deploy by the thousands is is the right approach and um, so that that even in the data center we'll see a heterogeneous mix of uh, quantum computing systems. Yeah, it's almost like sort of uh, blades or something, right? I mean, you could do it in theory. Exactly that, like that, yeah. Right, you could swap them in and out as needed or um, add or add or subtract or... Yeah, thank you yeah for no, sharing that's your... exactly the vision there, yeah. Yeah, now thank you for sharing your perspective on the importance of heterogeneity within these solutions. And again, pattern matching, you know, Cray versus uh, Intel, and now it's... Maybe nine billions and uh, an IBM or Rigetti. No, it's great. Great insight. Um, in closing, I always like to ask my guest to share perspective on challenges in developing the quantum ready workforce, an area that I'm particularly interested in and passionate about. So I want to get your take on how a company like Diamond Billions finds talent and how do you go about recruiting for your company? It seems like many companies have affiliations with research labs or universities, um, other recruiters you use. Any insight into specific roles that are harder to fill than others? Um, how do you, how do you go about uh, building out the headcount? Yeah, sure. Look, it's an, it's an interesting um, stage for for the quantum computing industry. Yeah, it's so early. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of questions still about how we can map the existing talent pool to an organisation structure that that functions, and and I think there it's it's really that almost almost no one has the skills, the full set of skills that's needed to, to operate in a traditional org structure. Yeah. So you could think of that like if I'm trying to hire a manager, uh, there's not really many people that have 20 years of, of senior management experience and a quantum computing background. Or from a project leadership perspective, there's not too many project management experts who've, who've also got uh, really strong quantum computing backgrounds. And so we're needing to then marry a mix of um, skill sets across the company and bringing people in from a diverse set of backgrounds. And the key thing there is that then people are uh, have, have really nailed the, thing that the things that they've done in the past, that they're bringing in expertise to the company and yeah. they've got a capacity to learn, a hunger to learn and grow. And yeah. um, so with that, that I'd say at, at our core is a culture of curiosity and learning and that we're bringing in all these uh, people with different sets of expertise and it creates this really vibrant environment uh, where, where we can all kind of bounce off each other and, and learn a lot. So, I mean, personally, that's been one of the, the most rewarding things for me building this company is, is uh, bringing in all these fantastic people to work with from a whole range of different backgrounds and, and learning huge amounts there. Great. Do you pull from the university there where you went to school or are there other... Universities. Yeah, in so I mean, um, so certainly 
uh, hiring people from all over Australia. Um, one of the big things we've done too, though, is, is expand into Germany. Yeah. So that's kind of been home ground uh, for myself and Marcus, you know, where we spent a lot of our careers and is kind of ground zero for uh, diamond-based on computing at room temperature. And so there's a huge talent base of, of diamond people there. But uh, in southern Germany, it's also really one of the world's uh, – I, I don't think there's anywhere significantly better than that in the world for engineering. I say you go to Silicon Valley for the money, you go to southern Germany for the engineers. Uh, and it's, for quantum computing, it, it's the place to be. I think a diversity, a di- diversification of a location is also part of our, um, our talent acquisition strategy there. Great. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for that insight. I want to invite people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn and appoint them to your website. It's quantumbrilliance.com. I noticed you have a Twitter handle at quantumbrilliant1. There's some videos on YouTube as well. Um, And I want to thank you for joining me today. I really enjoyed our our conversation. Appreciate you taking the time to share your insight with, with me. Thanks so much, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Great. So thanks for joining me today. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please share this podcast on social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Andrew. Again, learn more at quantumbrilliance.com. Listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already, and please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technologies. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.